Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 24, and we'll read from that together. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are our King. I pray, Lord, that as we look at this topic of, of kingship and, and your kingship today, that our hearts would be open to see you as the sovereign Lord of the universe. And Father, I pray that we would see that your son Jesus is our true and great king who rules and reigns at your right hand right now. And Father, would you help us to believe this this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when we talk about the concept of kingship, we tend to think of this in a bit of a negative light. You know, when I say the word king to you, the images that come to your mind are, are usually this sort of outmoded, maybe outdated, uh, retrograde institution that, that was in the past. You know, we've moved beyond this thing as a society. The, the word king sparks images in our mind of these, you know, old-timey historical figures, like maybe like King Henry VIII, who, who's only famous for killing some of his wives. Or it sparks images of some of like Roman emperors or, or Chinese emperors who literally stabbed each other in the back and they ruled their lands with these iron fists. You see, the word king, it sparks images of absolute power absolute authority used in this tyrannical and despotic and terrible way. And because of this, the concept of kingship has become tainted in our minds. You know, to us, the idea of kings, it, it's a bad thing. We don't want kings anymore. You know, we want democracies. We don't want one person to have all of that authority and all of that power. And so when we come to a text like this, 
a text that explicitly talks about God as our king, it can actually be quite difficult for us to grasp this concept. You know, on the one hand, we have this tainted image of a king. And on the other hand, we have the Bible saying that God is king. And these ideas, they clash in our minds to the point where we might misunderstand what the Bible means when it talks about God as king. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to examine this psalm and we're going to see what it teaches us about God's kingship. And hopefully, hopefully by doing this, we can actually redeem the idea of king when we're talking about God. Now, ultimately, what I want us to see today is I want us to see that God is king. That's my big point. If you're taking notes, write that down. Really, really simple. God is king. And we're going to explore this idea in three different ways. First, we're going to look at the king himself. Secondly, we're going to look at the king's people. And finally, we're going to hear about the king's return. So the king, the king's people, and the king's return. All right, first, the king. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 1 through 2 in our text. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So right from the start of this psalm, the author paints us a picture of the God that we worship. And the picture that he paints us is a God who owns everything and everyone in the universe. You know, it's a picture of the almighty king of scripture whose dominion actually includes all places and all people everywhere. Now, it's important for us to note here, even before we get into this text a little bit further, that this is not the only place that the Bible speaks of God like this. You know, the language of God actually owning the earth, this is language that's used all throughout the Bible. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 10 verse 14, we read this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Or in the book of Job, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You see, creation is his. We are his. He is the owner of everything and everyone, and therefore he is the king. Right? He's the king of the whole universe. Now, the psalmist, he actually doubles down on this just to, just to really make sure that we fully understand what he's saying here by actually elaborating a bit more on what God has done in verse 2 of our passage. For he has founded it, meaning the world here, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, this language is creation language. You know, this is language that's meant to remind us of the, the creation story all the way back in Genesis 1. The psalmist is actually bolstering up God's claim to his authority by pointing us back to the fact that God has created the world. And this means that God doesn't just own the world, but he owns the world because he made it. 
So the psalmist has painted a picture of the king. He is the, the creator, owner, God of the universe. He's the one who rules over everything and everyone because he has made everything and everyone in the universe. And all of this, you know, everything that we've just been talking about, all this scripture we've been reading so far, all of this, it's meant to drive us to a place of awe before him. This reality that God has created and that God is the owner of everything and everyone in the world should drive us to a place of worship before this great God. Now, I'm not much of an outdoorsy person. I know that even kind of saying that in the Pacific Northwest is kind of like an anathema thing to say, but I've just never really liked the outdoorsy lifestyle, all right? I've never liked it. I, I don't understand why you'd want to get outside and, and go on a four-hour hike and get all stinky and not have access to nice bathroom facilities. Personally, I just don't get it. But whenever I have talked to someone who is an outdoorsy person, one of the things that I've heard them say is that their getting out into nature is, is, gives them a sense of perspective on their life. You know, when they get out into the woods somewhere or they stand on a bluff just overlooking the, the whole Fraser Valley after a long hike, and they're just struck with this sense of their own littleness. They're just awed, awed by the glory of creation and the glory of nature. And this is similar to what the psalmist is actually experiencing in our passage. As he looks at the earth and as he looks out at the world, he cannot help but be awed by the God who created it and who keeps it and who owns it and who sustains it. You know, he's looking out at the earth and he looks at the world God made and then he exclaims to God, everything, everything is yours. You are great. You are, are worthy of all of the praise because you are the God who has created all of this, who owns all of this including me, including all peoples. And just like the psalmist, as we look out at the world that God has created, as we reflect on everything that we see, as we reflect on the God who, who made this world and who owns this world and who owns all the people in this world, we, just like the psalmist, should be driven to a place of worship before this great God. We should be driven to worship our great king, the great king that we read about in scripture who owns us and created us because of this. Now I hear the objection here. You know, I can, I can sense some of the uncomfortableness in what I've just been saying so far uh, this morning. God owns you. You know, some of you hear that and you just cringe at that idea. You hear that and you think to yourself, like, wait, what? God owns me? Like, like he owns me like I own my house or I own my car? Like, doesn't that kind of mean that he can do whatever he wants with me? Doesn't that mean that he can kind of just toss me off to the side when he's done with me? No, I don't like that. I don't want to be owned by anybody. I don't want to believe in a God like that. 
But this objection, I think, comes from a misunderstanding of how God is our owner. You see, as we've already said, God is not just owner, but he's also our creator. And this is really important for us to understand. I, I don't want you to miss this point here. Because God is the owner and the creator, it means that he is not indifferent to the things he owns, but instead he cares deeply, deeply for them. Think about it like this. Imagine with me two people for a moment. The first is just your average Joe, all right? And he goes off to a used car dealership, and he buys a used car. And now he owns it. He owns that car. The second is a retiree, and he heads off to the parts store. And he buys all the parts for that hot rod he's always wanted to build. And he goes back home to his garage, and he assembles it. And he builds that car. And then he goes around the neighborhood and he drives that thing with pride after he's done. Now, they're both owners, right? They both own a car. But if you had to guess, which one do you think is going to care more for their car? Well, the retiree. He built it, right? He put his own blood, sweat, and tears into making that car just the way he wanted it to be. His energy and his desire, all that went into creating it, and he is going to care for it in a unique way. You know, the guy who built his dream car, who, who's worked to see it turn out just the way he wants it to, he's going to be washing that thing, he's going to be waxing it, he's going to be changing the oil, maintaining it, he's going to be doing all this stuff because he participated in its creation. And this, this is what God's like. He's owner, but he has unique care because he's also the creator. He's not a God, not a God, who tosses his creation off to the side like a dirty old piece of trash or something like that. He is a God who, who intimately cares for and sustains his creation, including you and me. There was a famous woman in the 14th century named Julian of Norwich. And she had a vision one day of, of a hazelnut in the palm of her hand. And this is what she wrote about that vision. And in this, he showed me a little thing. The quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed. And it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding. I thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding, it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it, the second that God loves it, and the third that God keeps it. You see, God is the creator-owner-king who holds everything, everything in the palm of his hand, including you. He owns you. He owns me. But he's not indifferent to you. Because God made you, God loves you, 
and God keeps you. This is our king. You know, this is the king that we're presented with in Scripture. He made everything. He, he owns everything. He loves everything. He keeps everything. He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship and all of our adoration because he is the wonderful and the majestic and almighty king of the universe who created us and owns us. But this picture of this majestic, almighty king that we've been exploring this morning, this picture should really spark a question in our minds. And it's a question that the psalmist actually asks in verse 3 of our text. He says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can enter into God's presence? You know, in the face of such a great king, who could stand before him? Who? Well, the psalmist actually tells us who can, and what we find is that it's the king's people, which is our second point today, the king's people. Look at verse 4 with me. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The people who can enter into God's presence are the people with clean hands or right living, the people with pure hearts or right intentions, and the people who don't lift up their souls to what is false or right worship. You know, only the people with right living and right intention and right worship can enter into God's presence. Only these people are given the privilege of standing before this great and wonderful king. Now, notice here, it's not just the people with clean hands, right? It's not just the people with, with good intentions or with, with right worship, but it's the people who have all three of these things working together. You need all three to enter into God's presence. You can't just have one. You have to have it all. And it's important we recognize this because I think that we are really, really good at putting one of these things above the rest. You know, some of us here, we might claim that we have these really clean hands. You know, we do all sorts of charity work, maybe. We, we curate our social media feeds to show other people about how great we are and how virtuous we are. We, we participate in all of the right justice movements, and so we think our hands are clean. But maybe deep down, you know that you're doing it all for the social credit. You, know, you want to be liked, and so your heart's not pure. Some of us here have the best intentions in the whole world, don't we? You know, our hearts are pure. We're on board with all the great things in the world, but we do absolutely nothing about it. You know, we neglect to act on our good intentions, and so our hands aren't clean. Or maybe some of us, we have these clean hands, and we have these this great intentions, but we do all of these things where we're lifting up our souls to what is false. You know, we do these things while, without worshiping the God who's the very source of everything that's good in the universe. So our worship isn't rightly directed. You see, 
We need all three of these things working together to actually stand in God's presence. And to think otherwise, it's just ridiculous. You know, it's like if my wife asked me to uh, clean our house, and then I just went outside, outside our apartment building, got the hose, and I just sprayed down the outside with the hose. Well, that's not clean, right? There's still dishes to do, and there's still laundry, and there's still vacuuming, and there's still all sorts of other stuff. It's not clean unless the inside and the outside are clean. You need both, and so do we. God's people, the king's people, they need right living, right intention, right worship to be considered worthy to actually stand in the presence of God. We need all three of these things. And if we have all three of these things, well, the psalm tells us that we will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. When we have right living and right intention and right worship, we will receive God's blessing. We'll be declared righteous before him and we'll actually be able to enjoy his presence. So go do it. You know, what are you waiting for? Go do it. And here's the problem. You know, when I put it like that, you know that you can't do it. None of us can. You know that your heart's not clean. You know that you've done wrong. You know. You know, if you claim to me that your hands are perfectly clean, well, let's just, let's just take a look at your internet history. You know, let, let's talk to your last employer, maybe. Let's call up that estranged family member in your life. Your hands are unclean. Listen to what God says of us in Isaiah. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And you know, you know that your heart's not pure. You know that you've thought things and you've desired things in this life that you would want no one else in the world to know. You know. You know, if I said to you that I was going to attach a a device to your head, like a big old machine, like the one that Doc puts on Marty's head in Back to the Future or something like that, and it was going to broadcast all of your thoughts to the world, all of your desires, right? You would never, ever agree to this because you know, you know that your heart's not pure. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And you know that your worship isn't always set on God. You know, we all fail to worship God the way we should. None of us here, none of us have right living, right intention, and right worship. None of us. As it says in Romans 3, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
So we're lost. You know, we're screwed. The king's people, they've got to live a certain way, and we all fail. Each and every one of us here fails. We simply cannot measure up. We can't, and that's the problem. But there is a solution. And that solution is a person named Jesus Christ. You see, God knew that we could never measure up. He knew that our hands were dirty. He knew that our hearts were impure and warped. He knew that our worship was wrongly placed, but he did not abandon us. He didn't toss us aside. He came in the person of the Son as the man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we never, ever could have. And his hands, they were clean. His heart, it was perfectly pure. He never faltered in his worship of the Father. And he took all of his right living, all of his right, uh, right intention, all of his right worship, he took it to the cross. He died a death that he did not deserve, taking the punishment upon himself for all of our bad living, all of our bad in intention, all of our bad worship. The punishment for our own failure. And he endured it on the cross. The wrath of God that was completely and fully reserved for us, for you and me, was poured out fully on him, and he endured it so that we would never, ever have to. He died for us. And then he rose from the dead, defeating death, and he ascended to heaven where he has now been exalted, sitting at God's right hand as our great king. You see, God knew that we could never measure up in our sin. God knew we'd never be able to stand before him with clean hands and with pure hearts and with right worship in our own strength. He knew we wouldn't be able to do it. And so he sent Jesus Christ, very God of very God, fully man, fully God, who took the penalty for our wrong upon himself. And all who are found in Jesus Christ, they're not only forgiven, but they are made righteous. They actually receive Christ's clean hands as their own. They receive his pure heart as their own. They receive his right worship as their own. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we are found in Christ... God, a very God, the King himself, we are made righteous in him. We become the King's people in Jesus. So, we've seen how God is the great King of the whole universe. We've seen what he, he requires of his people, and we've seen how we simply do not measure up to the standard. But we've also seen that the king himself came. 
in the person of Jesus Christ and made a way for us to enter into relationship with God, to stand in his presence. And to all those that believe in Jesus, to all of God's elect who put their trust in Christ, a way has been made for us to now stand in his presence. But that's not the end of the story. Look with me now at our third point, the king's return. Let's read verses 7 through 10 together. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Now, when you first hear this read, I wouldn't be surprised if your reaction was similar to mine when I read it at first. Why in the world is he talking to a bunch of gates and doors? You know, it seems a bit strange, if we're being honest. It seems like a little bit of a weird text. But we need to understand here that for the psalmist, for the person writing this psalm, the place of God's dwelling, it would have been within the city of Jerusalem. So with that in mind, the picture that we're actually being presented with here is of somebody singing to the gates and doors of Jerusalem to open up so that the king can come in. You know, this section of our psalm, it's a song celebrating with praise the coming of the king, the return of the king to his city so that he can actually be with his people. And this picture of a returning king, this is the ultimate hope of Christianity. See, our hope, it doesn't end with the fact that we've been forgiven. You know, even though that's great and it's wonderful and it's amazing, it doesn't end there. It doesn't even end with the fact that we've been made righteous in Christ. Even though that's great, it doesn't end there. But it ends with the return of our great King, of Jesus Christ himself, who's not only coming back to to dwell with us and to be with us, but he's coming back to set the whole world to right once and for all. You see, one of the unique things about Christianity is that we're not hopeless about the world. We know that there is a king in heaven right now. We know that he is ruling and reigning over the whole universe right now. We know that he's good, that he's loving. And we know, we know he's coming back to restore everything to perfection one day. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If we know this, if we know our king is coming back to do this, then we should lift up our voices in praise with the psalmist. We, we should explode in worship, singing out loud, you know, lift up the gates, lift up the doors, because we know that the king will return. We long for the day when he rides through the gates, sets up the dwelling place of God once and for all with man. We long for that day. We long for the day when he returns and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. We long for that. We long for the day when Christ comes to make all things new. We long for it. We long for the day when our joy will be completely fulfilled because we are now with our great King. You see, God's kingship is not like Henry VIII. It's not like a Roman emperor. He's not despotic. He's not tyrannical. He's not a dictator. But he's a king of love. He made the world. He keeps the world. He sustains the world. And he came into the world and died so that we wouldn't have to. And he's coming back one day to set everything right so that his kingdom will be a place of perfection where God and man dwell together. This is what it means that God is our king. This is what it means when we say that God is the king. So let us proclaim it boldly. And let us believe this truth firmly because it's biblical and it's true. God is king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are the king of the universe. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown your deep love for us in your son, Jesus, who came and died for our sin and now is ruling and reigning with you at your right hand. Father, thank you that you are good and loving and gracious and compassionate, and we long for the day, Lord, when you return to make all things new. We long for the day when we get to be with you and dwell with you for all eternity. So, Father, I pray that this truth, this, this truth that you are the king who's coming back would stir up our hearts to worship you this morning, to worship you, to love you, to share the love and goodness of you with other people, and I pray, Lord, that we would be empowered by your spirit to do that. I pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.